I had a, a case and there was a trial. It was a short trial, but it was very, very important. And the other side had just gotten new lawyers and they didn't really understand the case at all. And so we had a conference with the judge and he suggested some, some trial dates. And I picked the one that was early. I picked the one that was on May the 17th because I knew they weren't ready. And I insisted on it. I wouldn't move off of that position. And the case was far away. So afterwards I called my ex-husband to arrange the custody because normally I would have had custody that day. And I said, you know, I have to leave on May the 16th to go up there. So can we please trade days? And there was just silence on the other end of the phone. And normally he doesn't give me a hard time. And I said, what's, what's the problem? And he said, what's May 16th? And I was looking in, in my calendar and I said, it's a Wednesday. And he said, it's our daughter's birthday. And I was so consumed with getting the state and trying this case that it literally, I had forgotten, right? It didn't occur to me. And then when he said that, I felt sort of flooded with shame and guilt. And then he said, well, just go back and change the date. And I said, no, I'm not going to change the date because my client has one chance and this is his best chance to win. And I can't, I can't give up that date. And I didn't. I went. We won. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Lara Bazelon. Lara has a decades-long career as a public defender. She worked as a trial attorney in the Office of the Public Defender in Los Angeles for many years and headed up an innocence project there. Currently, she's a law professor at the University of San Francisco, where she directs programs focusing on criminal and juvenile justice and racial justice. But she's also an author. This year, she published a novel called A Good Mother. It's a legal thriller about a tireless public defender named Abby, who cuts her maternity leave short, very short, so she can return to work to defend a client. That client, a 19-year-old mother with a baby roughly the same age as Abby's, has been accused of killing her husband. For all the novel's twists and turns, the real tension is in the subtext, which constantly wrestles with questions like why motherhood can feel exponentially more demanding than fatherhood, whether being a good mother is compatible with extreme professional ambition, and most unsettling, what makes a bad mother? Lara, who recently published a piece in the New York Times about how prioritizing her career has made her a better mother, spoke with me about how these questions have embedded themselves in her own career and why romantic notions of perfect motherhood can actually have detrimental effects on families. We also talked about a complicated defense case she worked on with her sister, the journalist Emily Bazelon. Lara's controversial work defending men accused of sexual assault on college campuses and our shared feelings about idealized depictions of the work-life balance of Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. If Barrett can sit on the bench of the highest court in the land while also raising seven kids, what the hell are the rest of us complaining about? Lara Bazelon, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I contacted you under slightly different conditions than I contact a lot of my guests. Um, 
I was familiar with your work and I've known your name for a long time, but the impetus for reaching out boiled down to a single moment. You were a guest on Glenn Lowry's show, The Glenn Show on Blogging Heads, and you were talking about your new novel, um, A Good Mother, which uh, is about, among other things, a, a woman, a protagonist who is maniacally devoted to her career, if that's not too strong a word. She is incredibly passionate. She works endless hours and she has a new baby. And a lot of what is animating the drama in the book has to do with this notion of who's a good mother? Is she a bad mother? And there was uh, an exchange that the two of you had where you asked if a man would be judged for being this sort of absent parent that this mother was. And I think Glenn kind of hemmed and hawed about it. Like he said, well, I don't know. I don't know if a father would be judged the way a mother was. And I was sitting listening to this interview on the subway and I had to keep myself from shouting like, of course he wouldn't be. There's no comparison. There's no comparison at all. So why don't we just start by talking about that moment and about what brought you to that moment with Glenn and what you thought about his response. I, first of all, was amazed that Glenn read my book and honestly kind of flattered because it's not the typical book that he reads. It's a legal thriller. And I think he's usually more high-minded and intellectual than that. And I was curious to know what he thought since he, he did read it and he had some interesting observations, but you're right. He wasn't quite willing to concede, I think, what you and I think is an obvious point, which is men professionally are not judged the same way that women are once they become parents. Sometimes it's actually the inverse where men are considered to be more competent, somehow more fleshed out as a professional if they're fathers. And also there's no expectation really for most of them that they'll take any kind of significant time off or in any way take the foot, their foot off the gas of their career. Whereas with women, it's the opposite. And so, yes, it was to me one of those questions that had a clear answer. Yeah. And, um, you know, I want to talk about all of your work. You're a law professor, you are a defense attorney, you're an advocate. Um, but why don't we just start with what this novel is about? This is your first novel. Is that correct? Yes, it had a stillborn sibling that was not. <laughs> I've never heard an author describe her uh, book as stillborn. That's uh, we uh, we often have aborted manuscripts, but I have not heard uh, that particular uh, euphemism. So, okay, but this is this is a legal thriller. It's about uh, a woman named Abby. She's the central character who uh, has taken on um, a a really, really tough uh, defense case. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about the the story and then we'll kind of get into the the themes that I'm so fascinated by and, and that are the reason I brought you on here. Sure. The book starts with a 19-year-old calling 911 fairly hysterically from an army base and she reports that her husband has been stabbed. And at the very end of the call, it becomes clear that she's a young mother, that this is her husband and that she's actually the person who who stabbed him. So then the question, the legal question is, did she do it in self-defense for her own life and the life of their newborn baby? Or 
is she, as the government says, a cold-blooded, calculated, premeditated killer who who murdered her husband for many reasons to get him out of her life and to collect his rather significant military life insurance policy. So that's the setup for the book. And then she ends up getting, as her public defender, a woman who is also a young mother and basically is expected to go on maternity leave and pass the case off to a pretty traditional bro-y attorney. And instead of doing that, she cuts her maternity leave short, comes back and insists on trying the case and then ends up in this rather ill-fated partnership with the person who was supposed to be taking over entirely himself. Okay. And her baby is what, like three months old? She doesn't even last that long. I think she lasts 47 days by her (laughs) own count on maternity leave. Okay. And we should say that the woman that she's defending also has a baby right around the same age. Yes. Their babies are almost the same age and they have very different parenting styles. Okay. So tell us about Abby's parenting style. First of all, how how old is she? What's her... Uh, she's not actually married to the father. They are partnered and, and living together. So kind of to set set the scene for her a little bit. Abby is not a particularly domesticated person. And she was in what was sort of a casual relationship with this guy, Nick, who's a marshal. So the marshals are kind of the federal police. And they met because he was in charge of bringing a different client of hers to and from court in a different case. And then they they started this relationship and she unexpectedly got pregnant. And they decided to have this baby and then moved in together, but they haven't actually been together for that long. And she really doesn't want to get married, not to him and not to anyone else. And she loves her baby a lot. And she also really wants to go back to work. Basically, she didn't have kind of a magical motherhood transformation. She's just as ambitious and hard-charging as she ever was before. And that's something that's very hard for Nick to understand and accept, in part because I think she's pretty bad at communicating and at emotional relationships in general. And in part because, like we were talking about before, it really cuts against the way that we think young mothers are supposed to behave. The client is actually a much more traditional mother. And she's 19, by the way, the client. Right. And Abby, the lawyer, is probably almost twice her age. Well, no, she's probably in her early 30s, but still much older. Okay. Okay. So were you... um, What sort of interested you about this story? Did you set out to write a legal thriller with this particular plot? Or was this kind of theme of motherhood and mothering and how to possibly balance a career about which you're really passionate and requires many, many hours with being a mother? Was was that driving you? Or was it just like a story and then this these particular issues arose? It happened in two parts. The case that I wrote about is based on a real case. I didn't try it myself, but two of my colleagues did in the early 2000s in federal court in Los Angeles. And I went every day to this trial. It was absolutely riveting. And I always thought it would make a good novel with some some editorial changes to kind of amp up the drama and cut out the parts that everyone thinks are really boring except for the lawyers. And then I started thinking about having motherhood be the theme of it 
really after I became a mother myself. And I wanted to play with these dynamics about what we expect of women and what women want for themselves and how oftentimes when you are going back to your job or maybe being perceived as choosing your job, you're also being seen by society, by your own partner, by your colleagues as a bad mother. And I feel like to some degree, I've made some choices in my own life that maybe have exposed me to those judgments or at least self-judgments. And so I was interested in working through all of that complexity in fiction. Yeah. And one thing that I was really struck by in that exchange with Glenn, not to, not to dwell on that, we should give Glenn some credit for, <laughs> for, for bringing you to me and for having this conversation. It was an amazing conversation, by the way, where you actually were sort of interviewing him. So just as, a, as an aside, I would really encourage listeners to, to listen to that conversation. I'll link to it in the show notes. But um, yeah, I, I, am always, I don't have children myself, and that is by choice. And I have to say that part of the reason for that is that I think I would be a bad mother. Like I am so obsessed with my work and I'm not a domestic person at all. And I just, I think that, I think that motherhood is romanticized in the culture to a destructive effect. I think that, um, I think that we don't talk honestly about what's required and just the unfairness of the workload. I mean, we can talk all day about you know, equal distribution of labor and fathers doing their part. But at the end of the day, you know, I've talked about this on the show before, it's women who have to gestate and lactate, and they really have to be there in the early years in the way that fathers don't need to be or kind of can't be. So uh, like, what, what do you, what kind of, what kind of part do you play in that discussion? That is a great question. And I'm also very familiar with your work. I should say when I was a Los Angelino, I read your column religiously back when I actually bought the newspaper and it was a physical thing. Yeah, I had to write to fit. Yes, when I was an LA Times columnist, I actually had to hit 730 words every week to fit in that spot of the physical newspaper. So thanks for buying the actual paper. I did. And I also have, I've listened to your podcast quite a bit and, and read your writing about choosing not to become a mother. And I completely understand that line of thinking. And I agree with you that we fetishize motherhood, I think, in a way that's incredibly unhealthy. And we kind of set up this dynamic where there's really only one way to to be a good mother. And that slots women into this kind of impossible box where they're supposed to be working, but not too much. And they're supposed to be present all the time at home, even though a lot of parenting isn't really that interesting. And they're supposed to be grateful to be crawling around on the floor, wiping up Honey Nut Cheerios with a wet paper towel, all this stuff that ignores the fact that that's not an achievable, realistic, or even a healthy way, I think, to be a parent. That said, I really did want children. And I, I love my children. They're my, my two favorite people. But I think I was also pretty unprepared for what all was going to be involved in being their mother. And I also think I was not prepared for the fact that it didn't changed my personality that much. And so I was still this very hyper-focused, career-minded 
person. And that led to a lot of friction and a lot of, I think, you know, it was probably a combination of feeling like some people were judging me, but also that I really felt terrible about myself for a long time. Oh, gosh. So, okay, I don't even know where to start. That that idea that it's going to change your personality, that is so resonant to me because people, I feel like people always say that like back in the, you know, I'm well past this now, but back in the days when people were trying to convince me that it would be great if I had kids, I often heard, well, you say that about yourself now, but you really change. It changes you. (laughs) You, you'll, you'll be a totally different person. And I'm thinking like, well, I don't really want to be a different person. A and B, what if you're wrong? Yeah, exactly. First of all, do you really want to have this complete personality makeover? What would that look like? It it just the whole thing seemed really bizarre. But I'll just give you an example of some, some things that I did when my kids were very young that I think probably a lot of people would find controversial. So I was really committed to becoming an academic. And I did this horribly paid fellowship for a couple of years. And then when I think my son was three and my daughter was one, I got an offer to become an associate professor at Loyola Law School and and run their very small innocence project. And my husband did not want to move. We were living in San Francisco. We didn't move. Instead, I commuted every week. So I would get on a plane on Monday and I would come home on Thursday. And I did that. You're commuting to, to Los Angeles? From is that- San Francisco. Okay. Loyola, Loyola is in Los Angeles, just for people who don't know. Yes. yes. Well, there's a number of Loyolas, but there's a one. lot of Loyolas. Yes. Okay. So that's what I did. I lived away from my kids three nights a week, four days a week for over three years to do this job. And that's a pretty wow. extreme controversial thing to do. And then to make it sort of even more extreme towards the end of that, we had this case where our client was innocent. And not surprisingly, the prosecution refused to concede the obvious. So we had to have a retrial. And that involved me being gone for long stretches of time because I, I retried that case. And it took weeks and it took months to prepare to do that. And of course, that was in LA too. So during that time, it was it was very stressful time professionally. It was stressful, obviously, for my marriage. And I always kind of thought, what am I doing to my kids? Am I doing something irreparably damaging to them? And one thing that's really interesting is that they have no memory of it because they were so young. They literally mm-hmm. don't remember that time. And then right after that, we ended up divorcing. And so ever since then, I've only ever had them half the time. Um, so it was kind of almost like a setup for what happened next. But I felt tremendous guilt. And at the same time, I was like, you know what, there's this guy who has been incarcerated for 34 years, and his mother wants him to come home. And that's pretty important. And right now, I think he needs to take the front seat. And so that's the decision that I make. But I think if a man made those series of decisions, people would be standing up and applauding. And oh, yeah. when a mother makes those decisions with these toddlers, people are thinking, what is your problem, lady? And why did you even have these kids? Right. Well, if a man made that decision, it would be all the more proof that he is an upstanding moral person and a good father. Exactly. So so, so this is fascinating. You chose a career and you chose a, a legal field that requires many, many, many hours. You're you're a trial lawyer. So, you know, I think a lot of this conversation about work-life balance and mothers working, it it comes down to women choosing 
certain kinds of professions where the hours are controllable. I mean, this is the gender wage gap discussion too, right? It's not so much a gender wage gap, it's a motherhood penalty. So if you have, for instance, doctors, I mean, I talked about this with some guests recently. If you have, you know, a, a woman doctor is more likely to choose pediatrics than surgery, a surgical field, because the hours are less and she can control her schedule if she wants to have a family. But you didn't do that. You could have chosen uh, a kind of legal practice that didn't involve working 80 hours a week or whatever it was, but but you didn't. It's so interesting that you bring up the doctor example because my mom is a doctor and she went to medical school in the 60s when very few women were doing that and graduated first in her class and she could have done anything. And she ended up becoming a psychiatrist in part because she knew her marriage was not going to work and she wasn't going to be able to spend as much time with us if she picked a profession where, say, she was an OBGYN or a brain surgeon. And so she really did make that very calculated decision. My dad, meanwhile, was actually gone a great deal traveling for work. And I think growing up, I realized I didn't want her constraints. I wanted his freedom. He was able to pursue his ambition and do what he wanted. And the truth was, it didn't impact my relationship with him. I didn't end up feeling like, oh, my dad is so neglectful, etc. If anything, it made me value the time I had with him because I had less of it. And so you're right. It, it was in a weird way, I think, a calculated decision. And But then I really tried. I thought, okay, I'm not going to do this job anymore because it's too crazy. I'm going to try to get a job closer to home. I'm going to really be a full-time academic. And that ended up working out. And so now my job is happily within walking distance of my house. And yet, you know, the ladder to get to tenure is brutal. And you have to say yes to everything for years. And you have to publish and you have to show up to events and you have to travel. So it actually didn't change all that much in terms of how how many hours I was putting in. It was just slightly more flexible and perhaps slightly less consuming, but but very pressureful. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I think we have this idea that if you have some kind of academic post, that that's workable. I mean, that's one of those. Okay. Can we just talk about Amy Coney Barrett for a second? Yes. Actually, now that, now that I, this has just popped into my head. Okay. So I'm sure you have a lot to say about Amy Coney Barrett. And I actually wrote a big piece about her. It was so, I think our heads were exploding. I mean, for all kinds of reasons. Let's just put her like politics aside for a second. So she's got seven children. Is that right? Yes. Um, okay. And, at least one of them has special needs. She is appointed to the Supreme Court. And I think a lot of us were saying like, oh my God, how can she possibly do this? Like, how is she going to make it work? Especially these kids are little. And we're feeling really, there's like some cognitive dissonance here because the very women who are saying, oh, well, it's not fair to hold women to these other standards are also standing around scratching our heads like, oh my God, how is this possible? And a lot of the response to this was, well, she had an academic job, so she was able to balance these things. Oh, and her husband was really involved. He's he's a partner in a law firm, so I, it's not like he can just run home for lunch every day, presumably. Um, but uh, just just jump in anytime here. <laughs> what, what do you make of Amy Coney Barrett and the sort of mythology surrounding her? So watching the orchestrated performance of these White House appearances that she and her family made leading up to the confirmation process and listening to the senators talk about her from both sides of the political spectrum and listening to her describe herself, my head did want to explode because 
what Donald Trump said was, and this is going to be the first woman in in the Supreme Court to have school aged children. What Amy Coney Barrett said was, well, <laughs> just what I, everybody was waiting for. Exactly, like, oh, finally, because that's important. <laughs> and then what she said about herself was, well, of course, you know, as honored and humbled as I am, my real identity is as the driver of the carpool and the organizer of the camping trip. And then, yes, we get to hear about how this cushy academic job must have allowed her all this time and what a team player her husband must have been when, of course, he's a partner. And as I just explained, academia is no joke. Quite obviously, there's something else going on behind the scenes, no doubt, quite a bit of paid help or perhaps their family being hyper involved. But rather than sort of tell that truth and the truth that probably at times it's quite a mess, what we're presented with is this is my real identity. I'm this perfect mother. And, you know, while it's an honor and a privilege to be considered, it it pales by comparison to driving the minivan. And I just, listening to that, it was very hard for me to swallow. Well, and it's so maddening because it is the example that is brought up by people. I don't often conservatives. I don't want to say entirely, but often when you say, well, you know, women really, it's, it's, we, we need, we need universal daycare. We need subsidized childcare. We need to completely rethink the framework of the family economy. If women are going to be in the workplace, which I think, you know, most of us can agree we, they, they should be. But then people will say, Oh, but look, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi had, had four kids. And, you know, it, it, the fact is Nancy Pelosi didn't even get into her, get into politics till her kids were older. Is that right? That I is mean, right. it's like, yeah. So I, I just feel like there are these examples of these extreme outliers. I mean, even if Amy Coney Barrett has all the help in the world, I don't think we can deny that she must be have an extraordinary amount of energy. There is something different about her, uh, for better or worse. But to sort of hold these exceptional cases up as a standard that everybody can meet if we only just got out of bed half an hour earlier is is exasperating. I agree with that. And I also agree with you that it isn't just a conservative thing. It's this calling card and you have to play the game no matter what political party you're from. I mean, it was interesting. Kamala Harris made the decision not to have children. And when she was campaigning as vice president, what she talked about constantly on the stump was her devotion to her husband's children and yes. her role as their mamala. Mamala. And that was yeah. her most precious and treasured accomplishment, and that it was absolutely vital that she be home on every Sunday to whip up a home-cooked meal for her family. And again, it's this weird thing where you're sort of paying obeisance to this idol where you're saying, don't hate me, look at what a loving mother I am, and please understand that that's the most important thing to me. And I would never, ever, ever, ever put my family second, when quite obviously, you have to get where you are which is fine and acceptable. It's just not okay to say it. Right. Do you think that uh, the public is really as um, as resistant to that kind of narrative as we think? I mean, what would have happened if Kamala Harris had just said, no, I, I, I don't have any kids. It gives me a lot of extra time to, to do these things. And part of the reason I'm in this position is because I didn't have kids. Like, would that have repelled the, uh, the American people? 
I hate to say this, Megan, but honestly, I think it would have repelled quite a few people who were already primed to hate her for various reasons, like she's a black woman, and they probably thought that she was too ambitious in the first place and jumping the line, etc. So I think her even saying, you know, I made this choice not to have children. And not only, not only am I at peace with it, I'm happy about it. And I enjoy this time because I can go meditate or get my nails done. I honestly think that people would have wanted to put her in a stockade. And so it was actually a calculated choice that I think, sadly, made a lot of sense because there's nothing wrong with not wanting to be a mother. And there's nothing wrong with putting your career first but you can't say those things in polite company. You just can't. In fact, many people will probably listen to you and I talking about this and think that what we're saying is is horrific. <laughs> well, that's why the show is called The Unspeakable. So that's fine. We can <laughs> yes. we can say we can say any number of horrific things. Uh, okay, but like she said, she's not saying uh, I I have all this extra time to go to the hair salon and get my nails done. It's more like I have all this extra time. And I, I agree with what you're saying, but just to sort of extrapolate, I, I have all this extra time to have this career because the fact is, if you're going to be in any kind of leadership position, whether it's in politics or you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or you're a high-level administrator in academia, whatever it is, you can't just, you're not working nine to five. You're not working 40 hours a week. You're probably not even working 60 hours a week. You're working 80 hours a week regardless of your your sex and it's just harder for women because if they're if when they have small children they're going to lose those years of climbing up the ladder and i just i i don't even know if this is really a question i just i find it amazing that people not only uh deny the way we fetishize motherhood but they deny the amount of work it takes to just succeed in anything that's 100% true. And I also think it's scary to expect mothers of young children to step back and not pursue a chosen line of a career because there are costs to pay down the line. You talked about the motherhood penalty. Well, one of the penalties is if you stay out of the workforce for a bunch of years, then it's harder. It's much, much harder to get back in. And I hope we're getting to a point where we're more accepting of nonlinear careers and you know different career paths and as you said, the mid-career pivot and all of those things, which, by the way, I thought was fascinating. And we should talk <laughs> well, about that's, some more. That's separate from the any kind of parenthood issue. If that's that's a whole lot harder to do if you have kids. So, yeah, yeah, that's its own thing. But, but I think you're gonna you end up sometimes paying a pretty steep price for that, and that was something that always worried me. What always worried me was this idea that I was going to be dependent on someone else. That I was going to be dependent on my husband, or after I got divorced, I was going to have to go ask my parents for money. Like this idea that I would have been lucky enough to go to college and go to graduate school and have this education and be able to make a living, but then have made all these choices that sort of made it impossible for me to support myself was something I find sort of endlessly <laughs> terrifying. And I never wanted that. I never wanted to be dependent on anybody else. And I never wanted to ask for alimony or child support, which is a good thing because it wasn't coming my way. And right. I was relieved. I mean, the one thing, I mean, and we can obviously talk about getting divorced if you want, since we both have been, but it's an unpleasant experience. I don't recommend it as an enjoyable endeavor, the one kind of consolation I had was, okay, I'm going to be financially solvent. I'm going to be able to support myself. And that was really reassuring. Well, and also, this is another thing that nobody talks about, and I believe you've written about. If you have a good relationship with 
your co-parent and you're divorced, it actually makes it easier to work. I mean, I know women who have been incredibly successful and have been able to uh, really rise professionally after their divorce because they've only got the kids half the time. And that's like a completely unspeakable to say like, oh, this is this has worked out great. Not that, that there is, are, not that it's not painful, but there is an upside. That is the dirty little secret of divorce. It is true that you have this time where you can work and you can work in solitude and peace. And it's kind of unbelievable. Yeah. Laura, how old are you? Can I ask? Or what sort of era did you grow up in? What, what I, decade? Yeah, I'm 47. I was born in 1974. I think maybe right before Nixon resigned. Okay. So you're a couple of years younger than I am. So I'm assuming you grew up in the 70s. It was the free to be you and me era. It was the the women can do everything. Men can do. Moms can be plumbers. <laughs> I love that you're bringing this up, Megan. This was my favorite album. My parents well, it was had that great music. Yes. You, oh, you amazing. had it on a track. We had yes. the actual record. And uh, yeah, I remember the pink, the cover. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that just for people who don't know that this was a project of Marlo Thomas uh, in the 70s. It was a children's record that was like straight out of second wave feminism. And it was to teach children that um, boys and girls were equal and that boys could have dolls and that girls could uh, be plumbers as we all aspired to be. And it had all these uh, famous people singing on it, like Alan Alda, Rosie Greer, the football player, was singing about how it's all right to cry if you're a boy. I mean, can you imagine now? <laughs> no, it's amazing. Harry Belafonte, Michael Jackson, yeah. before the pedophilia. Uh yeah. <laughs> it was right. a star-studded cast. I think... Billy Crystal's on it about the baby. Oh, really? I think oh, so. Oh, you're right. You're right. Where they're talking to each other. These two, yes. these two infants are having a conversation and they, oh my gosh, I haven't thought about this in decades. This is sort of radical considering the moment we're in. These two infants are talking to one another and they don't know what sex the other is or something because like each that. each wants to do things that you would typically associate with the other gender. Right. Okay. I think the Billy Crystal character says he wants to be a cocktail waitress but he's the boy in the conversation okay. between the babies. Okay. All right. This, wow. This is a whole other, I feel like I should bring Marla Thomas onto the show to discuss this. Okay. Okay. But you grew up in this time, assuming you could do anything. So when you were a kid, when you were a little girl, how did you imagine your life as a grown woman? I grew up in a house where that album was our mantra. My mom was a full-time professional. She was a doctor. My parents 100% told us that the world was equal. We could do whatever we wanted. There was no blockage. There was no gender bias that we couldn't readily overcome. And I'm happy that I was sort of that um, blissfully unaware of what was coming down the road for me. But that, in fact, turned out, unfortunately, not to be the case. And when did you start realizing it wasn't the case. Was it really after you had kids up until that point where you just kind of sold on the, the notion that it was all possible? I think the first time it really hit me was when I started practicing because right after law school, I clerked for a judge who was a man and a white man and an older white man and also an ardent feminist. And there were four of us that year and we were all women. He was 100% behind our careers. And he helped me get my job, which was as a trial lawyer in the Federal Public Defender's Office. And that's when I ran headlong into 
a lot of things that I didn't expect, including just this very specific differential treatment between the male attorneys and the female attorneys. And this was like most obvious, I think, from the way that the judges treated us, but also just the internal dynamics of my own office and what we were expected to do and how we were expected to speak and what we were expected to wear. I mean, you know, it was that era where if you weren't trial, you absolutely should be wearing a skirt suit and stockings and not raising your voice and not getting too angry. I had judges say crazy things to me one after the other over the years. And you were just sort of supposed to suck it up and metabolize it because it wasn't about you. It was about your client. And if you made a stink, you were going to be harming your client. So I kind of learned how I was supposed to conform. I didn't even wear makeup really until then because it was a hippy-dippy 1970s. My high school was very hippy-dippy. I never really paid any attention to that stuff. And then all of a sudden, it was sort of like, no, 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 you need to look a certain way. And it was a traditionally feminine way, even though this is a blood sport. You're out in this arena, you're cross-examining people, the stakes are really high, and yet you're supposed to be doing all of it wearing high heels. But in a very buttoned down way, though, very conservative suit kind of yes. know, lawyers or, you know, just, just to be clear, not that anybody needs reminded of this. Law- lawyers dress very conservatively. It's it not is like, not Allie McBeal, for sexing sure. Sexing it up. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, right. they want no. you to be pretty, but not sexy. Right. So uh, were the male lawyers allowed to yell and, and raise their voice in court? Yes. And in fact, I remember one of my supervisors telling me there's things I can do that you can't do and things that you can do that I can't do. Meaning that in certain contexts, I was actually potentially going to be more effective, right? If there was a child who had to be cross-examined or a woman who was the victim of some kind of an attack, that it was going to seem better coming from a woman. And I I like to call this the vagina ghetto, where women lawyers are kind of told, oh, well, you know, there's a certain kind of lawyer where having a vagina is an advantage. If you want to want to sue people for products that harm women, like breast implants or, or various things like that, or you want to prosecute sex crimes, right? That's the idea that, well, that's actually an advantage. But if you want to do kind of the standard robbery, murder, high profile fraud, name your case, generally speaking, you should probably be a silver haired white guy in a nice suit. Right. Although one area where it apparently helps to be a woman is if you are defending uh, guys who've been accused in Me Too type of cases. I mean, this is a whole area. Right. 100%. And it is no accident at all that in many of these cases, the front facing lawyer is a woman. Yeah. So do you have thoughts about that? Let's actually, as I would, we're going to circle back to this motherhood and working a million hours a, a, a week thing, but just let's, everyone should know about the sort of work you do. You are a, a, an advocate. You are a, a, a are you, well, you're not still a public defender. You were in the public defender's office in Los Angeles. R- remind us sort of what your resume is. I was. So I was there from 2001 to 2007. And then I do this academic work that is called clinical law, where I teach students how to be lawyers. So basically, I run a pro bono law firm out of a law school. So that's what I did at Loyola. And the pro bono law firm was the Innocence Project. And that's basically what I do now at the University of San Francisco, except that I have more control over the cases that we take. We do some wrongful conviction cases. We kind of do a little bit of everything. So I'm still representing clients. I'm just representing fewer of them with my students basically being trained to do that work along the way. 
I think you've written about due process in sexual assault accusations on college campuses, for example. So is that something that um, is feels like a conflict or have you been criticized for um, kind of in some cases taking the side of these men who are uh, whose plights are quite out of fashion at the moment? I don't know how to say this without making it sound like an overstatement, but there is no work that I have done, including defending people who have murdered people and are facing the death penalty that has incited this kind of hatred and revulsion for me personally on the left than defending male students and female students actually accused of sexual misconduct or assault on campus. And I started doing it completely by accident. I had no intention of ever doing this, but I run a clinic at USF called the Racial Justice Clinic. And it came to my attention that there was a lot of concern about how, first of all, as you point out, there was an absence of due process in cases, regardless of the race of the accuser or the race of the accused. But on top of that, that there were disproportionate um cases being brought and then punishments being meted out to students of color and in particular black men. So I was kind of aware of this. It was in the water. And then a friend of mine referred me this case. And it was a student in a college way up at the top of the state in California who was a black man who had been accused of of rape by a white woman and he didn't have any money and he was facing imminent expulsion. And so my friend asked me if my students and I would take it. And actually, my original response was no, because I didn't know anything about these cases. I didn't know how the law worked. And then I went to my students and I sort of explained my decision. And my students, who were overwhelmingly women and women of color, said, oh, no, 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 we have to take this case. This is oh, racial that's justice. interesting. Yeah. What year was this? This was, oh, I remember this so well. This was January of 2018. Okay. So this was already very much in the news because I feel like people really started talking about this around 2014, 2015. Yes. Okay. So, okay. So that's interesting. And they were mostly black women or women of women of color. Actually, well, so my, that semester I had a Latinx student who she was kind of the most fervent about this is a really important case. Like we say we're about racial justice because in this case, we realized from the outset, my friend had told me that as a result of this woman's accusation, what had happened on this campus, which was only 2% Black, was that students had posted his picture with his name and his nickname and the word rapist in huge Black letters all over the campus. And the town, which was overwhelmingly white, apparently was also aware of this. And he had basically locked himself in his apartment and not left and had sent a message to the Title IX coordinator saying, please investigate this. People have died behind allegations like this. I haven't done anything and I'm afraid for my life. And you, up until that time, were not really familiar with this arena. This wasn't something that you were following in a kind of culture war uh, spirit or anything like that. It's so strange given how much of my time it takes up now, but no, I really wasn't. And so what? What are your feelings about these kinds of cases? I mean, you know, we, one thing I've said in the past is that, you know, if Betsy DuVos, you know, did maybe one thing right during her tenure as education secretary. 
she rolled back a lot of the uh, a lot of the protocol that was preventing this due process from occurring. Like a stopped clock is right twice a day kind of thing. Um, what are your thoughts just about that? Yes. So I actually wrote an op-ed that was published in the New York Times. Of course, as you know, we don't pick the headlines. It said something like, I'm a feminist and a Democrat, and I support Bessie DeVos's reforms. And as a result of that op-ed, I got messages on my phone threatening to murder me, rape me, bury me alive, mostly from women. And I, I imagine actually <laughs> mostly from women, people. but they're so moral and good. I know. And, uh, it incited a tremendous amount of, of, of controversy and did not, did not make me many friends and lost me some friends to say the least, but all that to say with you, I agree that a broken clock is right twice a day. And while I'm no fan of Betsy DeVos, these protections were absolutely essential. And that was what I was saying. And again, just to go back to this case, I can explain to you how it was litigated. And this is how most cases were litigated. What happened is that this young woman came forward with this allegation. She told her side of the story. They go to the person who later became my client. He tells his side of the story. It's this one investigator who has this background as being, you know, strongly sort of a take back the night rape counseling kind of person. So very much sort of an advocate for one side. And the investigator is an administrator. Sometimes it's another student or sometimes there's a student who's sort of like a quote unquote impartial witness or something like that. Who was the investigator in this case? This investigator ran her own business and was hired as kind of a contract worker by the school to do this. So she interviews both of them. Um, She interviews, you know, his roommate and I think her ex-boyfriend And the allegation is, to say the least, very, very murky. But nonetheless, she concludes by a preponderance of the evidence, meaning 5149, that she is more believable and that he is responsible for rape. And that was basically the whole investigation. Her, She didn't record anything. She has some notes in a Word document that are vague summaries. You have no idea what actually transpired in these meetings. And then that had all happened by the time my clinic got involved. When we tried to, when we tried to provide more evidence, when we tried to do other things, she was not interested in hearing that. We had to appeal her decision and just go through a massive amount of process. But can you imagine just basically being declared a rapist based on that? And and the facts that she conceded them were they met on Tinder. She went to his place. That's when she claims she did a bunch of consensual things, including digital penetration and oral sex. And then she claims there was a rape. And then by and then she says, and yes, two days later, I matched with him again. And I went over there and had consensual sex with him. And then six weeks later, she accuses him of rape in the first allegation. And in meanwhile, the first, yes, in, in the first encounter. Yes. Right. And this is something we, we hear a lot in these cases. So the accusation is from uh, an encounter that that was followed by consensual encounters. Yes. And there was also just all of this stuff going on in the background with this guy who she had had an on again, off again relationship with it. Quite frankly, at least through the text messages seemed quite abusive and manipulative. On her part, you mean? On his part toward her. I mean, it was oh, on almost, his part it almost seemed her. misdirected. Like this guy is really problematic. In, in any event, it was this very tangled up kind of, case. And yet the way that it was handled, I mean, the way that it was investigated to me, that's not, 
That's not an investigation. There was no hearing. There was no independent fact finder. It was just, she was the detective. She was the prosecutor. She was the judge and she was the jury, this one person. Right. You know, it's so interesting. I feel like the themes here really circle back to a lot of what we were talking about at the beginning and a lot of what is going on with Abby in your novel, this idea that women have some kind of inherent moral authority and are good and sort of are, are, are incapable of the kind of toxicity that we associate with men. And so there's, you know, there's kind of an illusion that, that women are, are getting, are, are being elevated, but it's actually sexist. You know, to it's it really is. Yes. And actually I had this experience recently that was very, very jarring where this colleague and I are are litigating a case and it's kind of similar. It's not Title Nine, but kind of roughly analogous. And we were on a call with opposing counsel. And I, I haven't been on a call like this probably ever in my life. It was it was very unpleasant. But part of what made it so unpleasant was that when he was talking to my male colleague, they had this very typical sort of male exchange where they were, you know, each talking very loudly and, and making their points. And then he would turn to me in this incredibly condescending tone of voice and say, Laura, you used to be a public defender, right? Maybe you can explain to Dan what it means to blah, 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 blah. And then at a later point, he said, Laura, you're a feminist, right? Maybe you can explain to Dan what the lesson is from the Me Too movement. Do you know what it is, Laura? What's lesson number one? And then answering his own question, he said, lesson number one, as all feminists know, is believe women. And I just, it was a combination of the way he was speaking to me, which was just obscene, and what he said, which is not the lesson of the Me Too movement. That was deeply jarring and gaslighting on so many levels. And what I said back to him is the lesson of the Me Too movement is to listen to women and treat their allegations the same way you treat everyone else's allegations, which is that they need to be explored and investigated and tested in an adversarial process. And this older man saying this to me in this way was, yes, making this exact point, which is we're going to elevate women and we're going to put them on this pedestal. And I, this man, I'm going to lecture to you about what, what the Me Too movement is and what real feminism is. And that is that we decide that women are the truth tellers and they tell the truth more than other people. They're just special in this holy way. And I just, there were so many things about the conversation that were deeply upsetting, but that was certainly one of them. And he wasn't being sarcastic. He was sincerely trying to make this point. Or do you think he was pandering to you or like? He wasn't or, or pandering just... to me. He was treating me like I was not very bright 13 year old, but that I could be called upon to at least say the shockingly obvious thing to my equally dim witted partner. And so he was going to have me just be the mouthpiece for what he, in his great wisdom, considered to be the obvious feminist principle and takeaway of the Me Too movement. See, and this really gets back to what Abby is going through in the book. I mean, there's a moment where she does something extremely unethical and manipulative using sexual manipulation. We're not going to reveal what it is, but 
um, I thought it was curious. I thought it was interesting that you included that detail. I mean, she's a really morally compromised person in moments, but we're still rooting for her. And I think a lot of people, especially readers, might have a hard time entertaining those two ideas simultaneously. Yeah. And I will say that a lot of people who re- who reviewed the book really deeply hated Abby. I think the New York Times reviewer called her highly unpleasant. Someone else said <laughs> unlikable, but that's, never that's boring. That's book reviewing for you. Yeah. But I did want her to be compromised. She does this incredibly stupid thing that her best friend slash the book's moral conscience tells her not to do. And she goes ahead and does it anyway. And it completely blows up in her face as, yes, using her so-called sexual wiles, I guess, to try to get something that she shouldn't be trying to get. And it's a complete disaster. I wanted her to be both a brilliant lawyer, but also a deeply flawed person who made dumb decisions, which I feel like are two things that can be true at the same time. I, I really didn't want that sort of character who's like the frazzled but beloved mom who's like rushing around but like still brings the cupcakes or not cupcakes I guess gluten free (laughs) whatever to school and is having these sort of cheery back and forth with her husband I just didn't want that person I wanted that person who was just absolutely a zealot and because she was the way that she was was capable of doing things in court that were that were quite creative and and even brilliant at times, but also that she made disastrous mistakes and had terrible lapses in judgment. Do you think that most successful lawyers, at least lawyers who are working as many hours as this person or doing these kinds of cases, do you think they could, if they're a woman, they can ever be that kind of person? Does that kind of person even exist or is this a complete figment of our imagination is anybody who is is anybody who is working at a very very high level or in uh, a high leadership position going to be anything but like a little bit unpleasant or a lot that's a great question i think at times your job probably requires you to be somewhat unpleasant and that's especially true i find this with myself i become incredibly self-righteous and i just think that the other side is evil and I find myself saying things, n- not just to them, but in court where I really afterwards think like, did you really have to go all the way there? But I also think that this character is an extreme. That said, I do not think, and again, this is a controversial position, but since we're on the unspeakable podcast, I'm just going to go ahead and speak it. I don't really think it's possible to be a great lawyer, quite honestly, without being a zealot because at least not a defense lawyer, because you're talking about a completely stacked system. You're talking about odds and stakes that are astronomical for your client. And it just isn't true that you can always put your family first in that kind of a situation. Quite often, your client's going to come first. Yeah. And that's a bold thing to say and incredibly honest. And you would think that one would be applauded for being honest, but you couldn't say that like on the, on the playground while you were standing around with the other mothers, I'm assuming. I mean, what would happen if you made such an utterance to no, ignore me? No, you would definitely not. I do not go around saying that. And 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 also sometimes because I'm running around, I'm not on the playground. I mean, last year or the past two years, we had a case in, in Louisiana. So as you can imagine, that involved 
some travel. I just took a case in Indiana. I've actually never been to Indiana, but I imagine now I'm going to have to go there a bit. And these are people who, if I'm not going to be their lawyer, they're going to rot in prison. So it seems pretty important to make those trips and take those calls, even if it's dinner time, even if I'm missing a parent-teacher conference. And I think if I was a father telling you this story, you would just be shrugging. Of course, of course, you would skip the parent-teacher conference, and you know because that's that's I'm not the father. It, it's much more eyebrow-raising. I mean, the other thing I will say that I think is sort of interesting is we sort of privilege all these things like family dinner is so important. It's really important for it to be homemade, and it's important for everyone to be sitting around the table. And we have this glorified idea of it. Most family dinners are disasters, honestly. And, you know, half the time when I make the They're food, miserable. Yes, yes. Yeah. I make the food. My kids don't eat it. I'm like, why did I do this? You know, and we end up having fun in random moments, which don't have to be regularly scheduled. And in fact, regularly scheduled moments of happiness are rarely happy. You mentioned the case you took on in Louisiana. That was um, the subject of a piece in the New York Times Magazine recently by your sister, Emily Bazelon, who's a journalist. And uh, that was uh, about a man named Utico Briley, who was uh, accused or convicted at 19, age 19 of, a, of an armed robbery and sentenced to 60 years, uh, a crime that he did not commit according to you. Um, you know, we're not here to completely, we're not going to spend a huge amount of time talking about this case. People can read. Um, it's a terrific piece but by your sister and you figure prominently in it. But what was it like doing that case? Just as an example, the back and forth, the amount of time that you needed to spend. What was What was your life about during those months or years or however long you were working on it? It was pretty crazy. I mean, it was such a fascinating litigation from a number of perspectives because the case itself was so hopeless. And that's why I ended up with it because my sister literally ran out of options. And then I made a decision, which I feel like is kind of risky, which is that I basically shared all of my information with her. I mean, she really was sort of almost like a member of the litigation team. She was there for most of the meetings. She had her own independent relationship with Utico. And so just from like a litigation perspective, it was very, very unusual to have someone who's a journalist, albeit your close relative, having that much access and also just having access to kind of your inner thoughts and your strategy. And because she's a Yale educated lawyer who understands a lot about post-conviction, it was actually very helpful because she is a rigorous thinker and kind of forced me forced me really to be a better lawyer in a lot of ways for him. But once it became clear that there was some traction... We we went there a lot. I went there. I brought my students there in 2019. I came back in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. And I was there for a week. And then I went back again in 2021. And even when I wasn't there, we were on Zooms with him. And of course, my kids were home because of the pandemic. So and my the place that we live is pretty small. I ended up in the kitchen. That's my office where I'm talking to you now. My kids were coming in and out. He was on Zoom. Everybody kind of got to know each other. It was a very interesting situation. And what what I think my kids sort of ended up appreciating about it, even though it was obviously very consuming, was that he was a real person to them. They knew what he looked like. They knew what he sounded like. He razzed my son about the Giants and, you know, about football. And, you know, he and my daughter traded stories about who was getting into more trouble, her with her teachers, him with the prison guards. It was pretty nuts. But the thing that was like the coolest to me was that um, the hearing in March 2021 was on Zoom. 
And I got to tell the story of what had actually happened. It was Utico's real day in court because his lawyers had been so abysmal that his story had never really been told. And so when we were there in front of this new judge, I got to do that on Zoom and my kids watched. And that was incredibly meaningful to me that they were able to see me do this thing for someone that they had grown to be very connected to. And so in a weird way, there was this blurring. And I know that with the pandemic, oftentimes that's very unpleasant. But for me, in this context with this client, it was actually incredibly meaningful. And that's a great moment. Can you think of moments that are like the the inverse moments where you're, something just happens with your kids or some kind of interaction where you wonder if you made a huge mistake? Yes. Yeah. The worst one, I mean, and this is so bad. The worst one was, was, um, it was in, in 2018 and I had a, a case and there was a trial. It was a short trial, but it was very, very important. And the other side had just gotten new lawyers and they didn't really understand the case at all. And so we had a conference with the judge and he suggested some, some trial dates and I picked the one that was early. I picked the one that was on May the 17th because I knew they weren't ready. And I insisted on it. I wouldn't move off of that position. And the case was far away. So afterwards, I called my ex-husband to arrange the custody because normally I would have had custody that day. And I said, you know, I have to leave on May the 16th to go up there. So can we please trade days? And there was just silence on the other end of the phone. And normally, he doesn't give me a hard time. And I said, what's, what's the problem? And he said, what's May 16th? And I was looking in, in my calendar and I said, it's a Wednesday. And he said, it's our daughter's birthday. And I was so consumed with getting this date and trying this case that it literally, I had forgotten, right? It didn't occur to me. And then when he said that, I felt sort of flooded with shame and guilt. And then he said, well, just go back and change the date. And I said, no, I'm not going to change the date because my client has one chance and this is his best chance to win. And I can't, I can't give up that date. And I didn't. I went. We won. The birth. Okay. Oh, I was going to ask what happened at the birthday, but yes, first what happened in the, in the, but court, of course, you it's won. so telling that my response is to go to the court case and not to say what happened with the birthday. So what happened <laughs> with the birthday was that I told her she cried. I was like biting down on the inside of my cheek because I wanted to cry and I didn't instead, you know, that morning I made her a chocolate chip pancake. I drove her to school and then I drove six hours to this hotel. And when she had her birthday dinner with my ex-husband and her brother and um, her, her grandmother, I, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't there. That's what happened. This is Monsters is a true crime podcast and YouTube channel where I tell the stories of the worst people on the planet. Though the stories of the victims are told, we focus on the monster who carried out the evil act. The show is split into seasons, and each season has a theme. In season one, we covered cases of filicide, which is the act of a parent killing their own child. In season two, we covered cases of people killing for love. We recently finished up Season 3, where we covered cases of parricide, which is the act of someone killing their parents. 
Tune in now as we start Season 4, where we dive into the minds of family annihilators. Sick individuals who decided to destroy their entire families. Check us out anywhere that you listen to podcasts or on YouTube by searching This is Monsters. I'm thinking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I'm thinking about how she was not just lionized, she was memified. Okay. I mean, to an absurd degree. This is also something I've written about. Um, and, you know, if you've seen any of the documentaries about her, it's pretty clear that she was not a great mother. And that is something that is sort of conveniently skipped over when people are uh, talking about her legacy and just holding her up as some kind of uh, just complete, just, just, you know, absolute icon of, of feminism. And um, again, I don't really know what my question is, but in that case, we hear about her having a baby when she was in law school. Am I remembering that right? I think did she so. have her daughter when she was still in, in law school and she left, did she leave Harvard law or Yale law? And I think she went left Harvard to, to transfer to Columbia because her husband. Because of her was husband. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the story with there, the story there always is that her husband, Marty, was an incredibly involved father and so supportive. And the reason she was able to reach the heights that she did was because of him. But it can't be totally because of him. It has to be because something, there was some emotional work or just some kind of physical presence. There were some jobs that were just not being done in that family is my guess. I think that's probably right. And I think the other thing is that, again, just going back to how we sort of fetishize motherhood, you know, the typical images that occur to you, again, sort of like the the homemade food and the PTA and the, and the, and the potluck and cheering on the soccer field. But the truth is there's a lot of ways to have fun with your kids and, and bond with them. And that those are, those are ways, but there's other ways too. I mean, I watch college football with my son. We hang out, we take the dog on hikes. We talk and joke and laugh in the car. You know, we have these unexpected moments of real joy and I feel deeply, deeply connected to my kids. I love my kids with all my heart. And actually I feel, you know, that my heart essentially lives in their bodies and not really in mine anymore. Cause that's what it means to be a parent, any parent. And I also think that it's sort of, yeah, it's not very traditional, right? But it doesn't mean that we aren't deeply connected in the same way that I feel deeply connected to my parents, even though I think for their time, they were also fairly untraditional people. Do you talk to your mother um, about the situation that you find yourself in? I do. It's funny. I'm writing this nonfiction book right now called Ambitious Like a Mother, Why Prioritizing Your Job is Good for Your Kids. And part of it tells my mom's life story. So I've been interviewing my mom and it's been absolutely fascinating. What does she have to say? She, well, my mom had this, had a really tough upbringing. She, her father at 31 died suddenly of a heart attack. And so her, her mom who had been a stay at home mom was left to raise my mother and become a school teacher, which at that time and still is incredibly poorly paid. So my mom basically grew up pretty much skirting the edge of, of poverty and then won a bunch of scholarships and skipped a bunch of grades and ended up at an elite women's college. And then 
where she met my dad. I mean, my mom was barely 17 when she met my dad and he's her only real boyfriend and sort of the love of her life. And I think maybe a lot of women having met that person would maybe just have decided to, to not, to not have a career. I think that was true of a lot of their friends at the time, but my mom ended up going to medical school and having not one, two or three, but actually four children and having this, this life with my dad, where on the one hand, she had this job that was pretty prestigious. And on the other hand, I think, you know, on the domestic front, she was kind of on her own to figure it all out because he wasn't going to really participate in a lot of that. Do you think, uh, do you have any thoughts about these kinds of trends that we're reading about in terms of men not going to college? Young men are, by and large, not getting anywhere near the kinds of advanced degrees that women are. There's a shortage of men in college. So you have this sort of dating economy, mating economy phenomenon where um, ambitious, educated women basically don't have anyone to mate with. I mean, we're talking in generalities um, and are going to, if they're, if they want to marry or partner with their equal. And so we're going to have sort of generations where there are a lot of women kind of doing everything on their own. Um, and I wonder if that's in some ways that's going to be really hard, but maybe as you say, there, I mean, people are going to get mad at me for saying this and I'm just throwing this out as a hypothetical. Maybe there's something easier about it too. It's funny. I think maybe a little bit of it is easier. There's some really interesting research about married women versus single slash divorced women. And this idea that some domestic work is, is quote unquote performative, that there's performative labor that you do because you feel like the other person has an expectation of how you're supposed to behave and what you're supposed to do. And that when you're alone, no one's watching. And so you don't do the more performative aspects of domestic labor and therefore you do less. And of course, also, if you're lucky enough to have, and I'm very lucky to have a committed former partner who's my partner in raising our kids, what that means is that 50% of the time, you are cleaning up the mess of the kids and driving the kids. In fact, 50% of the time, you know, the only person that you really have to deal with is yourself. So there's some research to suggest supporting what you're saying, essentially that there's something easier sometimes about not being in um, at least sort of traditional uh, heterosexual monogamous coupled intact relationships with kids. Right. And I, I want to be careful there. I'm not in any way suggesting that being a single parent doing it totally on your own is, is easy. It's Nor am I. Ex- extraordinarily difficult. But, you know, I was talking recently on this show about, you know, this idea of mothers having a sort of shorter psychic leash. Like, you know, the reason that I think sometimes mothers feel particularly put upon or that the husband is not doing, the father's not doing enough no matter what is because we sort of invent tasks for ourselves. Like, you know, it's not enough to take the kid to school, but you have to interact with the other parents in a certain kind of way and maintain a kind of um, social decorum that is just somehow required. And the, the father has no idea how to do this, or it's not enough to know uh, when the doctor's appointment is, but you have to know how to chit chat with the receptionist in the office, like that kind of thing. Um, like we're making more work for ourselves. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's partly because you're kind of looking over your shoulder and watching 
other mothers do that and feeling inferior and, and wanting to measure up in some way and feeling like if you don't, then you're falling short by an important social metric. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's really interesting. Well, I want to, um, before we wrap up, I want to shift and talk about, um, just what it's like to be a defense attorney. I mean, part of the delight of your novel is that we really get inside of that job, um, not only of the system, but, um, we, we see what goes into defending a client. And, you know, it occurred to me as I was reading, you know, we're in this sort of entertainment culture right now where we've got these, documentary dramas that are effectively relitigating cases. I'm thinking of, of making a murderer, for instance. I mean, I know it's been several years since then, but that, that was a case where somebody, you know, uh, somebody was sort of a documentary film crew was essentially doing what you do. <laughs> they were kind of being their own little mini innocence project with um, the, you know, the person in this case who had been convicted of, of murdering a woman. And it's sort of crowdsourced that the, the jury becomes sort of all of us watching this show together and, and talking about it on social media. What do you make of that kind of thing? I am addicted to those shows. I watched at least the first season of Making a Murderer feverishly like everyone else. And I thought, I thought those two filmmakers did an excellent, excellent job. And I thought it was really interesting that the two lawyers for Stephen Avery made the decision to cooperate so much. But as a result, you really got to see their thinking process and you really got to see the strategy behind what was happening in a way that was absolutely fascinating. And, you know, you could only hope to write a novel, I think, that was as riveting as a show like that. And I also think it's helpful because you really, as a public kind of understand, okay, defense attorneys aren't necessarily slimy and evil. Actually, sometimes it's the prosecutors and guilt and innocence aren't always so cut and dried. And there's reasons to be skeptical about the traditional narratives that you're being told about who's right and who's wrong. And so I like those kinds of shows. I like them a lot. I mean, it's weird that I watch them when, again, it's sort of my life. So why would I go home and binge this content? I guess it's because I have not very many interests, but the ones that I have are sort of deep. But yeah, I, I do, I do enjoy that. And I think I'm not sure that there's anything as exciting as defending somebody in a high stakes case, because it really does almost feel like you're a character inside of a story. You're learning something new every day. The case is going in this weird way that you never expected. You have to abandon your entire theory at the last minute. It's very dramatic and heart pounding. And I guess the other thing that's sort of addicting about it is there really is nothing like winning because it's, it's so rare. And maybe I got spoiled, but the very first trial I had as a federal public defender. And, you know, you're up against the United States Attorney's Office. You're up against the federal government. I didn't do very much. I was the second chair, but I did some. And at the end, the jury filed in and all 12 of them stood up and said not guilty. And I couldn't believe it. It was like we beat the most powerful government on the face of the earth. And that was the beginning of, I think, a 20-year and counting addiction. Mm. But do you ever think with some of these shows that we're not getting the whole story? I mean, I, I certainly after the first season of, of Making a Murderer, everybody was convinced that Stephen Avery was innocent. Um, but again, we're only seeing what we're seeing. So you're, you're never frustrated with these things? Oh, no, I get frustrated with them a lot. And there's so much that's on the cutting room floor. And sometimes I get frustrated because some of the things that they're saying are just completely wrong, although that's often 
dramatized shows. But no, it can be, it can be very frustrating. I did think it was fascinating that people ended up really coalescing around the idea that Stephen Avery is innocent, given sort of all of the different facts that have come out and reasons to maybe question that. Um, and I do think to some degree, it has to do with how dirty the prosecution was, right? But those two things don't have to both be true. You can have people playing very unfairly on the side that has all the power, meaning the side of the prosecution, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a stone cold innocent person on the other side. Right, right. I'm thinking too of the staircase. And oh, that was I love even, that. That's such an amazing, amazing um, documentary series. It's been many, many years. It's at least 10 or 15 years old at this point. But um, I mean, that was a case, I think, that was really, it challenged the viewer because ultimately, I mean, I don't know if I want to give it away, but I, well, I'll just, I, I, I think that guy was probably guilty, but there was not enough evidence to convict him. So if that's something that um, somebody watching can kind of keep in their mind, I think that's sort of a nourishing, it's a nourishing process. Now, I wonder if this moment that we're in, you know, everybody is so literal, everybody is just reacting at all times in the most emotionally driven way if if a series like the staircase could even like hold people's attention i don't even know people have the like attention span for that kind of thing now i hope they do because what i really appreciated about that show was the job that they did in portraying i can't remember his name but the husband who was accused of 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 brutally murdering his wife and you really see him as this incredibly flawed three-dimensional person and you also have real reason to believe, as you said, that there just wasn't enough evidence. And so you're left with this uncomfortable feeling that this is a person who maybe isn't a very good person, uh, maybe is even a dangerous person, and yet that if the system worked correctly, he shouldn't be convicted. And I really hope that people can walk and chew gum at the same time and understand that. And I'm not sure I agree with you. I don't think we're at that point. I think people are at the point where they can root for the innocent person. They can't root for the might very well be guilty, but the government cheated and lied, or there's not enough evidence person. Yeah. And it gets back to the, to the campus sexual assault arena. I mean, we can, we can recognize that this is something that happens and that this is a problem and people need to be educated about it and, and be aware of certain, certain sexual dynamics, but at the same time, know that all sorts of um, bad faith accusations can be made. By all sorts of people. And I just, for some reason, um, especially when you're dealing with uh, a traditionally marginalized group like women, uh, I don't know how marginalized we are at this point, but uh, it's, it's hard. It's kind of a big ask for some reason. I know. And I guess the thing about the campus sexual assault cases that worries me too is that me too, is that I think <laughs> that what we also lose sight of, and going back to what this lawyer said, believe women, believe women, is that that often comes at the expense of people who really can't defend themselves. I think what most people imagine in their mind's eye is a Brock Turner, blonde haired, blue eyed, wealthy swimmer, Stanford athlete, uh, witnessed committing a violent sexual assault on an unconscious woman. Most cases are not cut and dried like that. And, you know, none of my clients look remotely like him. They're, they're from very poor families. They're usually the first in their family to go to college. They're almost always black men. They're almost always being cross racially accused. And it's strange to me that the same people who are 
so fervent about racial justice and every other sphere, including the criminal justice sphere, are completely willing to sign off on these kangaroo court investigations yeah. that don't even involve court and are basically really spell the end, certainly of someone's education and their life plans. And so that part of it worries me. It worries me this kind of punitive idea that, well, if it's a certain kind of allegation, we can just do away with that pesky due process when we all know that when we do away with pesky due process, the people who suffer, the people who don't have any money, don't have any voice. And in our country and our society, overwhelmingly, those people have no money and those people aren't white. Yeah. Well, and even, I don't know how cut and dry the Brock Turner case was uh, ultimately. Anyway, but that's that's a different conversation. I, I actually want to ask you, this Believe Women hashtag it was never believe all women, was it? Because I feel like that's something that gets thrown around. It's a little bit of a of a red herring. I I think nobody ever really in earnest said believe all women, or did no, they? No, but people have said believe women. And I guess to me, I'm yes. not sure what the difference is, mm, right? right? Because <laughs> you're basically just saying, if a woman makes an accusation, you should believe it. And that is not how our system of justice works, right? It doesn't matter who's making the accusation. You have a process for vetting and investigating it. And that's true for journalism. I mean, you don't just print things without sort of asking the other side what they think. And, <laughs> well, right? now we do. But now we do. We just and don't print them. We, we put them uh, online. And that's called journalism. Yes. And it's disturbing to me. I feel like there's, you know, a media aspect to all of this that's we, you know, way more about than I do, but is like very uncomfortable, challenging, bare accusations. Like I think the way that the media, for example, treated the the Tara Reid accusation against Joe Biden is pretty indicative, right? I mean, she just got the benefit of the doubt to the point where these people were leaning over and doing a backbend when there was just so much evidence to suggest that you know she was not a particularly um, reliable person. And I think that that's, that's, that's saying it charitably. And yeah. I'm, I'm not picking her because, you know, Joe Biden is a Democrat and I love Joe Biden so much. I'm picking her because that just seems like the most obvious recent example. Right. What's the difference between an advocate and an activist in the, in the legal sphere for one? That's a good question. So if you are an advocate in the legal sphere, you're bound by certain ethical rules and duties, right? There's just things that you can't do. And I think if you're an activist, you have fewer constraints on you and you're not accountable in the same way, at least to the judge or to something like the state bar. And so I feel like activists have more maybe of a bully pulpit and more freedom to be colorful in their language with less concerns about eventual down the road repercussions. Yeah, there's sort of a lack of strategy in a lot of activism, it seems. Lack yes. of long-term strategy. Yes. Yeah. And maybe a lack too of long-term accountability. Right. Well, just have a, a few more questions for you. Um, but I want to kind of come back to to the novel and to Abby. What do you imagine happens to her in the end? We're obviously not going to give any spoilers, but she has her baby. She is who she is. <laughs> She's never going to stop working this way. Do you imagine um, her life five years down the road, 10 years down the road? I do. And I think that she's probably never going to change. She's a certain kind of person. And so my guess is that she'll keep 
soldiering on in her very zealous way and that she'll be a fairly non-traditional mother and that she's going to present a big challenge for the people in her life who want her to maybe be a little bit more balanced and reasonable and traditional. And what would help somebody like her? What would help you? Do you have very specific ideas about, say, universal daycare? Like, is that something that would really even help? Like, I can't imagine if there was some kind of public daycare offering, Abby would put her kid in it and everything would be okay. Like, (laughs) what would be a couple of improvements that would be meaningful, just policy-wise, societally, in terms of the way we function as a society? Well, I do think I'm a huge proponent of universal daycare. I'm a huge proponent of of free kindergarten. I think one of the things that holds so many women back is they can't buy their way out of their childcare problem. They can't afford a nanny. And childcare is just so incredibly expensive that sometimes it makes more sense for them not to work if if they're with someone who's making enough money. And so I really, I do feel very, very strongly about those issues. And I think that they would have helped. And it's funny, my judge, his name is Harry Pragerson. He set up a daycare in the federal courts. It's called Pragerson Daycare. And you could have your kid go to the daycare, but they have to be three months old, right? There's sort of these, these these age cutoffs, right? So for someone like my character, who's done after 47 days, <laughs> she's not quite, she's not quite there. But I do think things like that are enormously helpful. And to some degree, it, you know, it would certainly make a difference for people who, for example, didn't have my resources, like just to give you an example, but the low paying fellowship that I had, I mean, it paid so little, it barely covered the cost of childcare. And um, were it not for my then husband's salary, I, we wouldn't have been able to pay the rent. And certainly you could make the argument that I was better off not doing it and just staying home because it was basically a wash. Right. Right. And then there are always those cases like Sarah Palin that like (laughs) have, have the baby and then come back the next day and have like a crib in the office and manage to be the governor of a state. I I just, again, it's like, I can't get my mind around that. But people yeah, my love job it. They was can't not going to be cool about me like bringing a crib, and that was not going to. Ha- that's not going to happen. It's hard enough I think to bring she a also, dog in. Oh, I know. I think she also had a tanning bed. Yes, if I'm remembering this yes. right. So a crib and a tanning bed. It's good to be the governor of Alaska, Megan. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess my last question. Maybe it's going to be hard to answer, but I'll ask it. Do you know any actual bad mothers in real life, without naming names? Is this something you've encountered? God, that's a good question. No, I, 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 I do in the sense that, you know, some of the people that I have represented have come from pretty horrible situations. I don't know those mothers personally. I, I sometimes feel almost as if I do because I, I know the clients so well and I have very strong feelings, which I probably shouldn't have of anger towards these mothers. And it's not fair because I don't know them. And it's also not fair because I don't know their circumstances. But aside from that, when I think about like the various mothers who I've met over the years, whether they're family or friends or people on the playground, I mean, I've seen all different kinds of of strategies and approaches, but I'm pretty open-minded and flexible in, in what I think qualifies as a good mother. And for me, it's, does your kid have enough food? Does your kid 
have a place to sleep that's safe? Does your kid get medical checkups and baths? And does do you love your child? And I feel like if you can check off those boxes, in my book, you're a good mother. Well, Lara Bazelon, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for your honesty and um, congratulations on the novel. It was such an honor to talk to you. Um, I've been following your work for a long, long time and I'm an avid podcast, Megan Dom podcast, unspeakable listener. So thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you. The best guest is uh, often a listener. So <laughs> yes, it's true. Perfect. We learn from the others. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much, Lara. Thank you. That was my interview with Lara Bazelon. Lara is a professor of law and the director of the Criminal, Juvenile Justice, and Racial Justice Clinical Programs at the University of San Francisco School of Law. She has taught law at Loyola Law School, where she directed the Loyola Law School Project for the Innocent. She was a trial attorney in the Federal Public Defender's Office in Los Angeles for seven years and has published journalism in Slate, Politico, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and elsewhere. Her forthcoming book, Ambitious Like a Mother, will be published in April of 2022. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. To get ad-free, early access versions of this show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. There, you can get lots of perks, including ad-free, early access editions of the podcast, discounts on official Unspeakable Podcast nuanced AF merchandise, and access to a relatively new feature, regular Zoom hangouts where listeners get together with me to talk about specific episodes of the podcast. These happen pretty much every other Sunday evening from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also, if you join the Patreon, get full access to the Unspeakeasy, which is a growing sideline that right now consists of informal video interviews with people who you may or may not have also heard on the main podcast. Those videos are partially available on the brand new Unspeakable channel on YouTube, uh, but Patreon supporters can watch the videos in their entirety. If Patreon is not your thing, totally understandable. It helps immensely if you subscribe to the show on your podcast app. That's totally free. Uh, it helps if you leave a rating or a review, especially a positive one. I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest, maybe two guests in one show. I think I said that last week, but I mean it this time, probably. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now for amazing savings. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. 
If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert, caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals and recovery support specialists. At RCA's state-of-the-art camp in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs like PRIZE, a unique program for people who have been in recovery but have relapsed. Here, you won't have to start from step one. You'll build off the knowledge you've previously acquired in treatment and focus on the areas of your recovery that need improvement. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most major insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.